Welcome to the Stuttgart Missional Community Church Sermon Podcast. SMCC is a multicultural church serving the English-speaking community in Stuttgart, Germany. For more information or to contact us, visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net. Today, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week uh, was the Tower of Babel, an interesting story to be sure. But today, we're actually skipping, it looks like you're skipping ahead in your Bible by quite a bit, uh, into Job. Okay, so if you want to open your Bibles up to Job chapter 1, believe it or not, Job is 42 chapters of misery. I couldn't believe it was 42 chapters long. I guess it had slipped my mind. Uh, uh, it's, it is a book that is not going to be full. Uh, this is going to be a sermon that doesn't have a lot of jokes. I apologize in advance, right? It's hard to make light of Joe's situation. And I was thinking as I was meditating this week upon Scripture, why, you know, suffering is somewhat relative, isn't it? I was thinking about people who have to walk a half a mile for clean drinking water, right? If we have to walk down the block, for clean drinking water, that would be suffering, right? And, and, and for them, if they had one that was just, you know, a quarter of a mile away, it would be a huge blessing. Uh, of course, we've become very accustomed to a lot of things that people, a lot, a lot of places in the world don't have. And so suffering is somewhat culturally relative. But Job crushes all of that. Job is suffering on why, why such an extreme example did God give us? Because the story of Job is like suffering on a level incomprehensible to all of us, right? No matter where you're from in the world. And you know, I've often said, if you can't preach it everywhere in the world, you shouldn't preach it anywhere, right? And so Job, here we have a story of Job who just shatters every context of suffering uh, in the world, you know, uh, we'll talk more about everything that happened to Job in just a few seconds, but this story is, is somewhat depressing if we only focus on what Job has lost. But one thing that should give us some joy through the story of Job is God's constant presence with him. And uh, one reason that it seems like we're skipping around is because Job was most likely a contemporary or a close contemporary of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob otherwise known as the patriarchs. And we kind of gather this from a couple of, 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 of understandings. So if you have a chronological Bible, then Job is right, right here where he ought to be, right? But if you have a Bible that's broken up into books, like many of us do, then this is much later, like even beyond Esther, right? Right before, uh, is it right before Psalms? Yeah, right before Psalms. So, we think Job lived as a contemporary of, or close contemporary of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob because his wealth in the Bible is measured by livestock, by the possessions he had. And I think it's interesting that his wealth is measured by livestock, probably because they didn't have currency or coins, but imagine if we did that today, right? Like, how much were you worth? Well, I have, you know, uh, I have a BMW, I have, uh, you know, three Xboxes, and, you know, that's how much I'm worth, right? Or, uh, you know, I have this many kids. This is how, how powerful I am. And, and this is kind of an Old Testament patriarchal idea of wealth. So we know that. Uh, maybe I'm the only one that found that interesting. Uh, there's no mention of organized worship or the law in the book of Job. Uh, Job served as his family's priest, much like Noah and Abraham did. So that's why we believe he's a contemporary of, uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
So we're going way, way back, right? Way, way back. And I think it's, all, it's very interesting to know that suffering is something that's not new to us. Suffering has been part of humanity, being, being a human since the fall. And uh, Job today, while kind of a sad story, there's a lot we can learn from his, exam- his wonderful, wonderful example. And I think perhaps studying Job all week and getting ready for this message is, is kind of why, I f- again, I feel that weight uh, of God's presence today and, and uh, also just what an awesome God we serve and how we are just so fragile compared to him, you know, just so frail uh, compared to him. We're just all, we're all snowflakes compared to God, you know, we are. Um, I think collectively as a human race, we've been searching for an answer to why suffering happens and how we're to navigate life in the midst of suffering and adversity. And as we go through Job today, I, th- I believe we're going we're gonna to really understand that God is always near and that his presence is with us always. As we, it's, a, it's a slightly abridged story. We're not going to go through all 42 chapters of Job. Uh, but know this, that suffering is a result of the rebellion that we, we as a human race have against God. It's, it's a result of sin. God did not create suffering nor adversity. He created the world perfect and for us to flourish in it. But we, by rebellion, and, and you might think, well, how, what, in, in, that, na- in that sinful nature thing, what, what happened? I mean, the nature of sin, that rebellion against God has been passed down from Adam, right? That idea that we are our own God, right? That's rebellion, and that's been passed down through the generations, and that's where suffering comes from. So let's go to the Bible in Job chapter 1, verse 6, and uh, read, read together. Now, there was a day. Now, I mean, I want you to picture this scenario, okay, as we're reading it. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, think of the sons of God as heavenly beings coming to present themselves to God like a council before a king, okay? And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. When we're in the middle of suffering, the number one thing we want is relief, right? I hate vomiting. I hate it. I hate it more than anything, whether it's from a bug or back in the old days from um, uh, having too much fun on Friday night. I hate 
vomiting. And so regardless of the situation, when I find myself on the verge of it, I am at the bowl, I'm on the floor in the bathroom, and I'm praying. I, I'm literally praying. now. And again, this is old Matt and this is born again Matt, both praying. God, please don't let me puke. I hate, I hate booting. I mean, it is the worst thing in the and I'd rather feel nauseous for hours rather than actually do it. Some people are totally different. They'd rather just get it over with. But when we're in the midst of pain and suffering or we're at the, uh, like, I was trying to think of an example. So far in my life, this is probably the best example I can come up. Praise God for that, right? But when we're kind of at the end in our pain and our suffering, it's natural for us to cry out to God, whether we serve him or not. And that's kind of interesting, right? Because that's how I came to know Jesus. In the midst of a pain and suffering moment, a, a key moment in my life, where I could see no hope and no way out, I turned to the Lord. And I prayed for the very first time a prayer of repentance. And I gave my heart to Jesus. Even though I didn't know him, it was instinctive for me to cry out to God. Why? The same is why it's instinctive for your kids to cry out to you when they're in pain. Because they believe you can help them. Because you've always been there with them from the beginning. Why do we cry out to God? Because he's our father. And even in my denial of him, something within me understood that. And I cried out to God in my pain and my suffering and asked him for relief. Now, while he doesn't always answer the prayer next to the bowl, he answered that prayer that night, right? And, uh, I think it's very comforting to know that God is, is not absent. And even though sometimes in our pain and our suffering, while we cry out and we plead for relief, and it doesn't seem to come, we need to understand that no matter how earnestly we plead, no matter how earnestly we might even pray, that our effort does not negate God's authority on the earth. His plan and his purposes are higher than our plan and our purposes. And while we may not understand them, and like Job, may even appear to be angry with God, or just like, God, why did you even bring me onto the face of the earth to treat me so poorly? Why? And we don't receive an answer. But God's ways are higher than our ways. I know Jordan really focused on that last week, and I appreciate that. We need to understand that, that God is, always has the right to be God, no matter how bad things are for us. He's never absent. He's right there with us and in full control. How do we know that? Because when we read this text, verse 6 through um, 12 or 13 here, we see that it is God's idea to bring up Job. Satan's like, yeah, I've been chilling. I've been walking around on the earth, right? We know that Satan roams the earth as a lion searching for whom he may devour. We learn that later in scripture. He's walking around on the earth and, and, and God says, have you considered Job? You know, how come you haven't attacked Job? What's, what's the deal? And he says, because you put a hedge around him. This shows us two things. Number one, God is in complete control of even Satan. The idea that devil may, the devil made me do it is an excuse that we make up, right? We're always looking to pass the buck and the blame, right? 
That's one thing we can learn from that. Number two is that God does put hedges of protection around people. Now, when I pray, I don't pray for a hedge. I pray for a brick wall that, that Satan no way could touch, right? But regardless, God does protect his people. Here, God demonstrates his control over Job's situation by even suggesting to Satan that he would consider attacking Job. Satan knows that he cannot attack Job without permission. And I was thinking more about this also as I was meditating today. I like to insert myself into the situation. I think I find it fundamental to understanding Scripture is inserting myself in the situation. Stacy hates when I ask questions that I know the answer to, right? Or when I, I'm leading a growth group for example, and there's one correct answer to the question, and I'm just kind of withholding it, waiting for somebody to hit it on the button. And that's good, because that's poor teaching. It's good that she doesn't like that, right? She's always suspicious of those questions. If I was Satan, and God said, have you considered this? I would know that it would be an instant failure, right? I mean, I would know that. You would think I would know that. And I was thinking, why didn't Satan know that? Why didn't he see it, right? How come he didn't figure it out that, okay, God is suggesting this, and God doesn't, you know, basically I sinned and rebelled against God, and I'm no longer in his favor. Why would he be pointing me in the right direction? I don't know. I trust him. No, here's the thing about sin. It blinds, right? It blinds us to reality. It blinds us to truth. And we can get so greedy, so selfish, so idolatrous that we don't even see anything else, right? All we see is what we want. All we see is like some, you know, what we see is the prize. And we can be blinded to all else around us. And that had to be where Satan was, right? Yeah, I think I will do that. That sounds like a great idea. And he does it, and it, not knowing that this is kind of a, the setup of all time, right? Because God knows, he sees all time and eternity. He knows Job is not going to disappoint him. He knows this. So anyway, I, see, I just find that kind of stuff in Scripture interesting, right? Why did Satan go along with the, this thing, right? Because he, I believe because he was blinded by his own ambition, his own sin, but God does permit Satan to attack Job, but with limitations, right? He cannot touch his physical body, even though we know later that Satan pushes it, and even this is allowed in the future, but not to the point of death. But he says you can, you can, uh, you can affect all that Job has, including his possessions and his children. God, it's very important that we understand that God is not the author of pain in, joy, in Job's life, right? He is not the author of it. And we, man, I know that this can seem really close, right? Like God is, you know, I know he's not the author of it, but he's certainly allowing it. You're absolutely right, right? He is allowing it for his greater glory. He is allowing suffering. And the true answer to why suffering happens in your life Especially some of you have suffered greatly. And preaching this sermon and reading this, I understand that. I want you to know I'm sensitive to that. That all of us could probably do a one-upsmanship on suffering in some degree, you know. 
But the idea is not who has suffered the most or, and we may never understand for what reason. The lessons we learn from Job is that God is always present in times of suffering and that he is always in control. When you suffer, God has not abandoned you. It may feel though he has abandoned you, but he has not. He is well aware of the brokenness of the world and the painful situation you find yourself in and how the enemy is seeking to wound us and attack us. But know this, that in all of it, God is still in control. What happened to Job? Job had tons of animals. He had 10 children, seven boys and three girls. And they loved each other. They were siblings who loved each other, who hung out. Every week they got together, they, they, they had a godly father who, who loved them, who set a wonderful example for them. And, and they, they got together in one big place and had a weekly feast together. And in all of the locations where Job's property was, his animals, his belongings, and where his children were, uh, uh, there were attacks against all of these things. All the animals were struck, struck dead. A wind blew the four pillars of the house where all of his children were at one time and killed them all. And one blow killed them and all of his daughters-in-law and sons-in-law, everybody dead, and one servant after another comes and tells Job the bad news, the final being the, the dead children. For those of you who have experienced miscarriage, this may hit home, right? Some of you can't even imagine losing your children. The very thought of it stirs up something in you emotionally that's hard to even deal with, right? Losing your children. In one moment, Job lost 10 children all of his wealth. Again, suffering beyond anything we can comprehend. In verse 20, we're going to skip around, but we get into verse 20 of of chapter 1. It says this, Job arose and tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell down to the ground and he worshiped. He worshiped God. How many of you, honestly, that would have been your reaction? No, me either. You'd cry, you'd you'd cry out, you'd just be like, why? Why? Some of us would maybe even act out in anger towards God. I've seen people face adversity nowhere near the level of Job and totally reject God, walk away from God, blame him for everything, and walk away. But Job falls down and he starts worshiping God. And he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of, it, all of this, Job never sinned or charged God with wrong. Job cried out to God. He was very real in his suffering. He asked God why. He questioned God, but he never blamed him with sin or charged, charged him with wrongdoing. And we hear this verse a lot. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We may say it somewhat flippantly, but here Job has experienced the full power of it. Our response to suffering reveals our faith in God to ourselves and to others. 
How we respond in adversity, not in blessing, reveals what we really believe about God. Not only to ourselves, is it a witness to ourselves, but it's a witness to the world. Job recognized that life and all of its good gifts come from God and their origins have their root in God's kindness and his gracious provision. Our faith really has an opportunity to shine its brightest in our suffering and in our pain. But again, Job was real about his pain and suffering, and we should be too. I want to tell you, I have a very hard time, and this is probably a fault of mine, but maybe you share it. Somebody who's happy all the time, I mean, it's funny because you sing that in kids' church. I'm in right, upright, downright, happy all the time. You know, I was a kids' pastor for a while. So um, somebody who's always happy, who's always smiling, I don't know, I don't trust them. <laughs> I don't trust them. And, and again, it's, pro- it's probably just me, right? Maybe it's just me. Maybe they actually are that persona. And I'm mainly talking... Like, not people I know know, right? Because I don't really know, know anybody, and that's who they are. But you know this person at church, right? You've seen them in Christian circles. Like, they are just like always, oh, praise the Lord, bless God. You know, I'm from the South. And, and uh, you know, it just no matter what's going on in their life, well, lost the farm, you know, uh, uh, grandpa died uh, last week and it's bless God you know it's like and they got the smile on their face and they're not real about their pain right and every day I, I know I know we should rejoice every day is a day the Lord has made we should rejoice and be glad in it but there are days I'm sorry where I just am not feeling it and I'm just like man I can't look at you right now <laughs> this person that's happy all the time, right? I just don't trust it. And there is a lot of pressure in Christian circles to have this attitude where nothing ever bothers us and we never suffer and we, you know, we always have this positive outlook and we're not allowed to embrace pain and suffering and, and trust, you know, it doesn't mean that we sin against God. It just means that this is a really bad day and a really bad week and a really poor time in my life. And, 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 it's okay. The Bible says, remember, rejoice with those who rejoice, but mourn with those who mourn, right? That doesn't that tell us that that's normal? That it's normal to experience suffering? That it's normal to experience times of pain and maybe not have that smile on your face all the time? Pain and faithfulness are not mutually exclusive, but faithfulness in the midst of pain is what's right. Faithfulness in the midst of pain So point one, God is in control even in our suffering. Point number two, God is present in our suffering even though it may not feel that way. Skip with me to Job chapter 9. All right, if you're in your paper Bible, awesome. If you're in your digital Bible, you're already there. Just be patient. Starting in verse 14, Job 9 verse 14. How can I answer him? Choosing my words with him. Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Now skip down to 32. For he is not a man as I am, 
that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me. Let him not dread, and let not dread of him terrify me. Excuse me. Verse 35, then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. For I am not so in myself. Go to verse 33 real quick. There is no arbiter between us who may lay hands on us both. This is Job's wish. This is what Job wants, an arbiter between him and God. We have an arbiter between us and God, Amen. right? In our time of suffering, we have Jesus. We have Jesus. And, and we have this opportunity to speak directly to God through Jesus. We can know that we can speak to him, we can talk to him, we have this arbiter who's both God and man. And he represents us. He is exactly what Job wants. Someone to stand in that gap. Somebody to represent his case before God. Some of us view God as a really transactional God. That, and so did all of Job's friends. If you want to read through Job 42, follow us in the devotion. Follow the devotion this week uh, online. We have a devotion that you can follow every single day, and that'll help walk you through Job. Read Job. Read, read Job's the reaction of Job's friends. He had three main friends who came to visit him. All of them super encouraging people. His wife, super encouraging. Why don't you just curse God and die, is what she says. That's her advice. <laughs> don't get any ideas. And, you know, that's, that, that's not great, right? And his friends are like, you must have sinned. You must have sinned. That's why you're suffering. Isn't that kind of our Western theology today, right? You know, if Christians should only experience good health and blessing. If not, then you don't have enough faith or you've sinned, or, you know, something, something's hidden, right? There's, there's something going on, it's your fault. And this is exactly, back in patriarchal times, exactly the same story. Job's friends are coming, and they're accusing him of sinning. And Job has examined his heart, he's invited God to examine him, and there is no fault found in Job, right? He doesn't, he's reflected. When we experience hard times and suffering, should we take a moment of self-reflection, Absolutely, 100%. Does suffering sometimes come as a form of God's loving correction? Yes, sometimes it does. But sometimes we're suffering as a result of our own personal sin, which is, I think, most, most of the time that is the case. It's just the consequences of our sin. Sometimes it's the enemy, right? And when we suffer like that, we're suffering for God's glory, right? There's a big difference for suffering for something you did and suffering for something you didn't do, isn't there, right? There's a big, big difference. One is selfish, one is selfless, right? One is selfish, one is selfless. But these three friends, no friends at all, come and they're, they're representing God as purely transactional, like he's some kind of mystical traffic cop, well, you sped, you did this, so you get the ticket, you pay the fine, and everything will be okay. Why don't you just repent? Why don't you just turn away from it, right? Or kind of like Santa Claus, right? 
he's watching who's been naughty and nice, right? And if he gives gifts to good children, then he obviously gives what to not good children? Cole, right? Santa is way better than Krampus, by the way. Uh, <laughs> the Triolian, uh, yeah, just search Krampus. It's crazy. Okay, but uh, this idea where God operates on the same, he does not. He does not operate on the same level as Santa or a traffic cop, okay? God wants us to have a better perspective. He wants us to think well about who he is and about how he operates as the sovereign ruler of the universe. God is ruling over creation from his throne in heaven. Know this. Not only is he ruling over the earth, but he's ruling over heaven, and he's ruling over hell, right? The devil can't do anything without God's permission. Know this. As Christians, we don't believe in demon possession of Christians, right? Is demon possession real? Absolutely. We believe that demon possession is real. Is it common? No, it's not common. But as a Christian, that is totally antithetical to everything the Bible teaches. If the Holy Spirit has made us the temple and he dwells inside of us and we know Satan and, the, and God cannot dwell in the same place, then we know that Christians cannot be possessed by the devil. That's a little theology lesson for you today, okay? It's not in the notes. It has nothing to do with the sermon, but we need to know this, right? It's important that we understand it. Another thing that we really need to get our mind wrapped around in this lesson is that God is imminent, that he is imminent. That means that he is a personal God who created people in his image and that he desires to be in a personal relationship with them. It's important that we know this because I think even today in the church, God is represented as distant. We think of God as distant, as uninvolved and unconcerned about the affairs of our lives. I want to tell you that he knows every little decision today that we'll make. He knows whether we'll consult him or not. He knows whether we'll follow him in obedience or not. And he's concerned about that, right? He is involved in our lives. God is imminent. He is always close. When I was in the military, we, during the first Gulf War, we always thought a chemical weapons attack would be imminent, right? That means really close. So we had to be prepared. And so we had to carry that stupid uh, chem mask on our hip all the time. And let me tell you, it got in the way of everything we did, right? And you had to carry the suit around. And then during exercises, you had to put the suit on and I had to go out in California in the middle of summer and work on a jet engine in a chem suit. Yay, military, right? But we were being prepared because we thought that this attack was imminent. In the 50s, they thought nuclear war was imminent. Close. That's what that means, close. God is imminent, but not in a disastrous way, in a loving, kind, providing, shepherding way. He is imminent. He is close. He is near at any moment. We can call on him at any moment. We can know he is there. It's an essential doctrine that we must understand that God is imminent. He is not distant and he is not unknowable. He has written an entire book revealing himself that you would know him. 
Right? It's not a mystery. It's not a Da Vinci Code. There's not stuff hidden in here that he wants you to know that you've got to know, you know, that you've got to do a bunch of math and search and connect this to this and do that to that to know it. No, it's God's revelation of himself to humankind. Why would he hide stuff? It's not hidden stuff in here, right? There's complicated stuff. There's some stuff hard to understand sometimes, but it's not hidden. It's his revelation of himself. He's personal God. He wants a relationship with us, and he's written an entire story of himself into humanity that we would know that. Point number three, God uses our suffering to draw us closer to him. Who wants to hear that when you're suffering? Nobody. Nobody. You know? Who wants to hear God works out all things for those who, you know, works out the good for all those who love him and fear him? You know? This is where that, that essential verse comes in. Mourn with those who mourn. It doesn't say bash them with the Bible or correct them. It doesn't say be one of Job's friends and come and tell them of all their sin and unrighteousness and that's why they're suffering. It says go there and cry with them. It says go there and sit with them. It says go there and mourn with them. Christians, this is our response to the suffering of our brothers and sisters. right? We want, especially men, we want to offer answers. We want to offer solutions. We want to fix it right? And if we can't fix it, it hurts. It hurts. And we don't like feeling things, right? We don't like feeling things. So let me just fix it. The Bible says we're to sit with them, to mourn with them. There's a time for all that other stuff, right? There's a time for it. But one of the things that we hear often is, well, God's using it for good. How did God use the death of our baby as good. How is God using my rebellious adult child as good? How is me losing my job in retirement good? It's just one of those things we don't want to hear. It doesn't make it not true. It just is one of those things that brings us very little comfort during our time of mourning if we're being honest with ourselves. Job 42 verses 1 through 6 Job has gone through all this, you know, 40-some chapters between where we've been, listening to the accusations of his friends, confronting God and asking God deep, deep questions about why is he suffering. And in verse 1 of chapter 42, Job has listened to all that God has said, and this is his response. Verse 2, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's a word we need to bring back into our vocabulary thwart. Verse 3, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and, and repent in dust and ashes. Most of the book focuses on Job's desire to know why he is suffering but here at the end he realizes that his suffering has brought him infinitely closer to God I once heard of you now I've experienced you this is important church some of our brothers and sisters in other denominations focus a lot on the cerebral part of knowing God in the mind and studying the Bible and this is very very important but we can venture to an extreme on this where it's all academic and no experience. 
There are other denominations that would say it's all experience and what the Bible has to say isn't all that important. This is also dangerous. But we need to know that that we can study the Word and know God through that, but we also can experience God in a very personal way, right? And I would say for me, and this is the way I'm wired, for me, the personal experiences of God have had the most profound impact on my life, right? I, I, I know the Word, I've studied the Word, and God has certainly touched my life through the Word. But in the, in the moments where God seems, seems to enter the room, and touch me in a very physical way, in a very real, tangible experience, those have been life transformational moments. Those have been my transfiguration moments. And I'm, re- I'm referencing the New Testament when, when uh, Jesus takes three disciples up on a mountain and he is transfigured in his glory before them, where he really, they really experience the full glory of God. Church, we need to have a balance of experiential and this this uh our intellectual knowledge of god we need both we need both they're not mutually exclusive but if we lean way too hard on one end we miss the experience that personal knowledge of god that job valued so much that experience if we get all experiential and we throw the bible out then we are forsaking what god has revealed of himself and we become idol worshipers worshiping a figment of god but not god himself that's also a problem But through this suffering, Job came to know God in a greater way. I want to tell you, no matter what you're going through today, no matter what you've been through, God can use your painful experiences for His glory. I didn't grow up as a Christian. Um, Very much the opposite. But the things I've experienced in my life help me to relate to people who are suffering today. Right? Right? going through those situations today that I went through growing up. Rape victims are, survivors of, of, of rape are in a much better position if they've come through it successfully to help other rape victims, right? Now, don't get this twisted here, right? Sometimes we like to congregate in misery, and none of us have worked it out. We're just miserating together. That's not great, right, either, right? But when, we, when we're in the church, let's say, and we've experienced something very traumatic, but we've seen, we know somebody who's come through something very similar and on the other end of it has come to know God in a greater way, we should attach ourselves to that person and ask, what can we learn from you? Today, let us do that exact same thing with Job, right? What did Job learn? What, what was his reaction? How did he get through it. First, Job acknowledged God's sovereignty. Church, we can never get away from this. You know, he brought us in the world, he can take us out, right? I mean, this is his world. He makes the rules. He created us. We are his children, and he is sovereign over the universe, right? We can be consumed and just think the universe is all about us, but Job doesn't forget that God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. And he moved from demanding about earthly things to acknowledging God's control over eternal things. True relief in pain and suffering is not in the cessation of that pain, but in knowing that God is in control through the pain. Right? Jesus said, in this world we will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome 
the world, right? He says also, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is sovereign. Job also responded in humility. Oftentimes, our reaction to suffering pain comes from a right to ourselves. I deserve better. I've done all the right things. We've done this. We've done that. Why, why suffering now? Why suffering now? And it becomes about us. But Job responds in humility. He understands that he has overreached in all of his speeches throughout his whole book in questioning God and asking God why. And he understands that God does not owe him an explanation. He humbled himself before God. When we suffer, we cry out for God's presence. We want relief from the pain. But the ultimate gift through suffering is a deeper knowledge of Christ himself. How, what do we do with all of this? Number one, if you're not going through suffering right now, rejoice. Rejoice, kind of. One thing that this book kind of reminded me of too is look at Job. Job's life was so righteous that God invited suffering into his life as an example. This is called the theology of suffering, right? There are people, believe it or not, in very hard countries around the world who are praying to suffer more for the cause of Christ. That they would be considered martyrs even for the name of Christ. They're not, they don't, we spend our entire lives avoiding pain and suffering. But I would say kind of the Bible is a little bit contrary to that, right? Let us live our lives in such a way, in such holiness, in such, such fellowship with God that we would suffer for righteousness' sake. And I'm telling you, man, I'm praying this week, and I'm on the verge of like, Lord, let me suffer. I, don't, I can't let the words come out of my mouth, right? I'm like, do I really want to invite suffering? Because I know when I speak it, not only does God hear it, but Satan can hear it, right? Satan can't read our thoughts, but he can hear our voice. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I want to invite that. I don't, do I really want to suffer? But Job suffered and brought glory to God that we're still talking about him today, right? And those who suffer for righteousness' sake, those are the ones we talk about. We don't talk about the guy in death row for murdering a family, right? We talk about like Mother Teresa who gave up everything, even shoes, that kids in India could have them, right? That's who we talk about, people who gave their whole lives and suffered so that somebody else could have something suffering for righteousness sake so maybe it is okay to say lord if i suffer let me suffer for you for your name not because of my stupid decisions or my sin but for righteousness sake i think that's okay to pray but if you are going through pain and suffering today and you are hurting because of loss even if you're hurting because of the results of the sin in your life Repent from your sin and trust God and know that he is near. He didn't hide himself from Adam and Eve. We learned that several weeks ago. In the midst of their sin, he still sought them out. Turn away from your sin and turn your heart back to God. He is there. He is there. He is present. He is imminent. Trust the Lord. Turn to him in your pain and suffering. Express it. Be real about it. But worship him through it. Amen? Amen? Tough sermon to preach, tough book to read, but valuable lessons because who of us is exempt from pain and suffering? Not one. Thank you for listening to the SMCC Sermon Podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net.